Good morning. Nice to see you this morning. It's been a while since we've been here, uh, but it's good to be back and to be able to travel again and to be able to have Allison with us. Uh, but we'll talk more about that this evening. For those who won't be here this evening, we thank you for your prayers and your support and your love towards us and our family uh, during these difficult times. It's, we're great, grateful for the matchless grace of Jesus. Uh, sometimes in life we go through deserts. I live in a desert. You guys almost live in a desert. And, and from reports, maybe you'll one day become a desert. Some people moved away from the desert and went to the East Coast because they didn't like 120 in the shade in the summertime. We were talking with a border official the other day and and she was saying, we were saying how fast it went because the last time it took us four hours to get a, a permission and and we said, I, I just mentioned it was much easier to get it this time than last time and then that erased all her alarm flags. So why did it, was it hard last time? It's because we had to wait so long. Oh, that's because it's so hard to keep people here. Nobody wants to work in Calexico because it's 116 or 100 degrees for four or five months of the year, and, and then it's just sort of hot the rest of the year. Uh, but uh, so we do thank you for your prayers. And, and being in a desert, we're going to speak a little bit about deserts, because sometimes in our lives we come to those desert places where it's, it's hot. Sometimes our lives get a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know if that's why Mark wanted out of Yuma. Uh, it's uncomfortable. It's even here yesterday, didn't even get to 100 degrees, and, and it was uncomfortable, wasn't it? And sometimes that's how our lives are. It's uncomfortable. So let's start in, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I better put on my glasses so I can find the book of Deuteronomy. Near the beginning of our Bibles, after the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, of course, is, a, is the last message of, of God through Moses. Sort of a, a summary of what has happened and what has occurred and, and what God did and what the people did. And it's a sort of a restating of all that had happened during the last 40-odd years. And verse 2 says, And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, or desert, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And the Lord will bless his word to us this morning. We know the reason they were in the desert for forty years, don't we? The 12 spies went up into the promised land and they came back. And they came back with evidence of a good and prosperous land. They came back with the promises that God would do everything for them. They had the promise that God would go before them. And out of those 12, only two stayed on the promises. And for the majority, they didn't believe the promises. They didn't take what God had said to them literally. And so they wandered in the desert, figuratively and literally, for 40 years. And God not being an idiot, decided to use their disobedience to bring out obedience. Isn't that an odd thing? 
that they disobeyed, and because of their disobedience, God would, would use that time in the desert to give them another chance, to show them that it is possible that they could do it, to prove them, it says here, to see what was in their heart, whether they would really follow the Lord or not. And beloved, in our desert experiences in our lives, that's what the Lord does. He uses those desert experiences to, to prove us, to see what's really in our heart, to see what's really going on, whether we're going to follow him, whether we're going to keep on growing in, in what Peter would call the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, or whether we wouldn't. Sometimes the desert experiences of our lives are very traumatic and very devastating. Might involve the death of a loved one. Some people here visiting because someone's mom and grandmom and great-grandmom died. We're visiting because someone had a brain aneurysm and was left blind and I have no idea what to do or to teach Braille or, or anything. So we need to, to get some, some more help than I can offer. Some have other accidents and sickness, devastating things, we would call them. But beloved, sometimes deserts are when the world would say everything is going very well. When we're eating and drinking and, and being merry, but our souls are dry and it's uncomfortable because we know that, that what we need is, is to draw closer to God. But we don't. And life just feels really dry. And we forget about the words that life is more than just the accumulation of things. And our souls and our relationship with the Lord of the universe are as dry as a desert. And so we have those two issues to deal with when we talk about deserts and how to get through those desert times in our lives. And we'd like to thank God that he gives us the answer to go through those desert times in our lives. Because if it's not happening to you right now, it will happen very shortly. Because we live in a world where Paul writes, there's someone called the prince of the power of the air. And he has this huge influence and he makes it very hard for, for people to follow the Lord Jesus. He makes it very difficult to keep his commandments. And so we, we give thanks that there's one who has overcome the evil one. And it's him we'd like to think about this morning. In the desert, as you all know, we, we have these, when I first came from Canada in British Columbia, there's lots of water. There's rivers and lakes. I think there are more lakes in British Columbia than there are in the rest of the world combined, someone once told me including Michigan, the land of a thousand lakes, says the license plate. And so there's water and rivers and streams in abundance. But when I first came to Southern California, I noticed this odd thing that you, that's going on down here. Bridges with no water under them. And it's not going from one cliff to another cliff so you didn't have to go down a winding road. They're just all these bridges going over sand. 
we call them washes, don't we? And, and in these washes, it's, it's normally nothing. But every now and then, uh, the rains come. They almost came yesterday. They sure tried. Didn't really reach very far, but just got our cars all dirty. But we have these washes. Now, here in, in this huge valley, uh, you, don't, you don't see it as, as much, but in the southern portion of the Baja California, where they have the washes, they have these trees that grow. They're called acacia trees. You might remember acacia trees in the Bible. Probably the most famous portion of the acacia tree that is known to us is the portion where they take the, well, maybe if you read the King James Version, you might not realize it's the acacia tree, but it says shittim wood. And it comes from the Hebrew word shita, which means acacia. And so that's what, where we get the acacia tree. And it's, it's always talked about as representing the humanity of the Lord Jesus. Now, when I got saved, we were, just happened to be studying the tabernacle, and, and the, these guys would get up and they'd preach on the tabernacle, and they'd say, blue is the heavens, and red is the blood, and silver is redemption, and, and I'd be scratching my head, well, where'd you get that from? Do you ever wonder where preachers get some of their ideas from? I do. <laughs> I wonder where do you, there's this person that was teaching on the woman uh, at the well. She was, they were teaching that she might not have been a sinful woman. Uh, well, where do you get that from? But that's besides the point. Where do you get the idea that, that acacia would represents the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or is that just some silly thought that came into their mind and, and they read it in a book or they read it in a commentary or some other preacher told it and they thought, well, that's, that sounds like a really good idea. Maybe I'll just continue preaching that way. Well, the acacia tree in Israel and in southern Baja California grows in the washes. It's usually alone or there's a couple of trees, but it grows on the edge where the water would first flow away and then a seed would have a chance to, to spring up. Or, or else it would grow from, from the root of another acacia tree. Acacia trees are the kind of trees that, that you see in, in like the, the giraffes like to eat when you see the pictures of Africa. You see these sort of things that that come out of the ground and they look like a big umbrella. And they have thorns on them, big thorns. But that's where they grow, on the side of the washes. And it looks like a funny place for a tree to be growing in the middle of nothing. Because generally a wash is dry. There's nothing there. But we'd like to examine this. Let's look in, in Isaiah chapter 53. And in verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. When you see an acacia tree growing there on the side of the wash, you think, what a strange place for this tree to be growing. It's not an orchard, it's not a garden, it's not a forest. It just appears that it's a strange place that a tree would be growing because it's so dry, it's rocky, it's sandy, there's, there's nothing around it. And we think of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thinking of God's beloved son, God's Ben David. Ben meaning son, David, beloved. 
This is my Ben Davi. This is my son of David. This is my beloved son we are thinking this morning. And what a strange place for the son of God to appear. Imagine the triune God saying, who will go for us? And the son saying, here am I, send me. And he was found in the womb of a virgin. What a strange place for the son of God to be. In a manger, in a food trough, in Bethlehem, a baby in swaddling clothes. Isn't that a strange place for the Son of God to be? Like, like a shoot coming out of the dry ground. What a strange place for the shoot to appear. What a strange place for the Son of God to be. But he did it. Look at Isaiah chapter 11. Go back a little bit in your Bibles. Boy, I'm getting really bad with my eyes. Verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse... And a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of God. Out of this root, says verse 1, a branch shall grow. So out of the shoot, out of the root, in this strange place, out of, out of that baby, out of the Son of God being in such a strange place, a branch would grow. Not just, just any branch, because when we read about this particular branch in Scripture, it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's one of the names that he has, like Ben David, like like the beloved son, like the one who is to come. Are you the one who's, who's coming or do we wait for another? The disciples of John asked. There was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Those were all messianic titles that the, the Jews had expecting the arrival of the Lord Jesus. And, and this is another one, the branch that would appear. The branch that would grow out of the root that was in a strange place, in a dry land. Why would it grow? In, and not only grow, it would thrive. Sometimes when babies die, and we saw some babies die while we were in the hospital, on the death certificate they say, failed to thrive. It was born with life, but it failed to thrive. But this branch that grew out of the shoot that stuck up from the root in this strange and dry land, it did thrive. And it grew into a marvelous acacia tree. Even though it, it looks like it's an odd place for this tree to be growing, it grew. And it thrived. It's a, it's a wonderful testimony to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and his person and his work. And we read about this and, and we want to think about this branch that grew out of the shoot that came out of the root in a dry and, and weary land where there's no water. In a place where it's all desert. In the New Testament, we, there are four Gospels, aren't there? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Matthew tries to describe Jesus as the king of the Jews. Mark tries to teach him the, us that he's the perfect servant. Luke tries to teach us that he's the perfect human being. And John tries to teach us that this is the Christ, the son of the living God. That he's deity. And as we read through the Old Testament and we read about this, the, this branch, we're going to see how it relates to it. Let's look at Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. I have a new Bible and I have to learn how to read Roman numerals again. I haven't done that since elementary school, I think. Jeremiah 23 and verse 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David, the king, a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Out of David would this branch come. And he would reign as king. That's what Matthew teaches, isn't it? That Jesus is the king. And this branch is pointing to the one who would be the Messiah, the one who would come, who would reign as king in righteousness. Something to look forward to. Do you look forward to somebody reigning in righteousness? Oh, every four years in the United States, there's this big battle over who will reign. But we all look forward to one who will reign in righteousness, don't we? Doesn't matter if he's a male or he's a male or a female. That doesn't work. It doesn't matter if what sex this person is. It wouldn't matter what color they were how old they were, whether they were really born in the United States or not, how old they If only somebody would reign in righteousness instead of doing all the crooked, rotten things that politicians inevitably get themselves into. We just long for that. And one day, the promised king will come. And he will reign in righteousness and with justice. And we look forward to that branch who will come from this, the seed of David and reign. When it talks about him coming from David, it's talking about his humanity, isn't it? It talks about his birth. He was the one who was born king of the Jews. You just can't be made king. You had to be born king. Even today in, in England, we have Queen Elizabeth. And what's her husband's title? King Philip? No, no, it's Prince Philip. He was never born to be king. Prince Charles, he could be king one day, or Prince William, or... But Philip can never be king, even though he's married to the queen, even though his offspring can be king, because he was not never born to be king. That's why Herod had so many problems when Jesus was born. Because if there was a legitimate king born, well, then I'm going to lose my ability to reign here in the land of Israel. And so he had all the babies killed. Do you remember? And they fled Joseph and Mary and their little Jesus to Egypt. And they came back only when the news of his death, Herod's death had happened. And he was born king. That's why we have the genealogy in Matthew going back and it's starting with the son of Abraham, the son, or the, sorry, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Mark tries to prove that Jesus is the servant. 
Look at Zechariah chapter 3. Someone once said, if you can't find the book of Zechariah, look to the side of your Bible where all the gold still is because you haven't read that part of the Bible in a long time. Zechariah chapter 3. Verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee. For they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. So it's not only from David that would reign as king. He would also be a servant. How opposite could you get? He would be a king and a servant at the same time. That's supposed to be what our politicians are, aren't they? (laughs) They're supposed to be public servants. We, and I include myself because sometimes they ask me to pay taxes when I buy things here. Or when we get visas to cross and things like that. And they're supposed to be public servants. But oftentimes they don't treat you like they're servants, do they? They treat us like we're the servant and they need to be honored and obeyed and respected rather than the other way around. And I understand the authority they have. And you understand that authority they have. But here, this branch is called both the reigning king who will reign in righteousness and the servant. How opposite could you get? Couldn't you imagine some of your politicians being servants? Actually getting out of a suit and rolling up their sleeves? Maybe having to wait in the line at the burger joint? Instead of cutting in at front and, and people saying, oh, go ahead, cut in front, that's okay, we've only been waiting in line for an hour. Not much of a servant attitude, not much humility in that. But this branch who will come and reign will also be a servant and will serve in righteousness. And that's what Mark tries to bring out, isn't it? That Jesus is the perfect servant. The one who's able to do what needs to be done. Not too many people reign over us. Get done what needs to be get done, don't they? Oh, there's lots of things get done. But how many things need to get done, get done? My understanding is that there's not a whole lot of money for schools these days. But when I go by the schools that they're building now, it seems like there's a lot of wasted money on architecture. I understand they need a safe building to live in. Whether it needs angled walls and different kinds of materials to be built out of, I'm not sure. I guess those of us who were born in the days when things were made out of block and cinder block and bricks and and wood, we just too stupid and we don't know it. We we need better buildings to to learn in. And I understand that they have to put Wi-Fi in and I understand that they need a lot more electricity today to run in a school than in the olden days, but do they get done what needs to be getting done? Are classroom sizes appropriate? Are the textbooks, is the teaching, is that all appropriate? Are they just focusing on outward things? That sure, it's nice to have, but is it necessary? Does what needs to get done, get done? And you know what? When the Lord Jesus was here on earth, he always got done what needed to get done. 
when they were hungry people, he fed them. Now we were thinking about that one day, and 5,000 men plus women and children. So you might imagine 5,000 women there too. But in those days, there was no such thing as birth control, family planning. Could easily be three or four or five children per couple. So you have 5,000 couples with three or four or five children. There could have easily been 20 or 30 or 40,000 people there getting fed. And the Lord Jesus showed that he could get done what needed to get done in the book of Mark. Because that's the only thing that matters about a servant, isn't it? Can he get the work done? Can the contractor fulfill his duties? Can this person do what needs to be done? That's why in the, the gospel according to Mark, there's no genealogies. It doesn't matter who Jesus' father was, nor his mother, nor who his ancestors were. Because the only thing that was important was, could he do it? And Mark tells all about a servant who could do everything that needed to be done. Look at chapter 6 of Zechariah. Verse 12. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the, the man whose name is the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Behold the, the man whose name is the branch. That's what Luke tries to do, isn't it? That's why the genealogy in the book of Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew doesn't go all the way back to Adam. But Luke does to prove that Jesus is a man and his genealogy would go all the way back to Adam. That's important. The book of Ruth talks about someone who would be the kinsman redeemer. The book of Hebrews says something like this, the blood of bulls and goats, they couldn't take away sin. Why? Because it wasn't the perfect substitute. A bull could probably substitute for a bull, and a goat could substitute for a goat. But God doesn't hold somebody knocking down a fence or chewing your laundry that's drying outside as a sin, <laughs> as a goat or a bull might do. They could cover the sin. But it could never take away our sin. And Luke goes through a lot of hard work and effort to show that Jesus Christ was a man. To show that he was like you and I. To show that he was human. And it's very important that Jesus was a human. So he could be our kinsman. So he could be the one who could legitimately and completely be a substitute for us. An eternal substitute for us. Now, the Gospel of John tries to show that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Tries to show that he is deity. And you know, it's interesting in the scriptures that there are no references to the branch that talk about him being deity. There are other references to the branch that we haven't read, but none of them talk about him being deity. 
It talks about him being a king. It talks about him being a servant. They talk about him being a man. But it never talks about him being deity, which is an interesting thing. Because if the preachers are right, and the acacia wood represents the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the acacia tree is the one growing on the side of a wash in a, in a strange place for a tree to be growing, and this branch would come out of the root of Jesse, and then it stops short of showing that he's deity. That would just show his humanity then, wouldn't it? We remember in the tabernacle, the wood speaks of his humanity and the gold speaks of his deity. That's what the preachers always tell us. And, and maybe now we're finding out why. But you know, is Jesus being a human, is that important for us? Other than the fact that I just mentioned that that he could be a substitute for us. Let's look what Hebrews has to say. I see you have a new clock here. A much bigger clock than before. And you put the old clock at the back. I don't know if that's a hint to me or not. Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, should we go in chapter 6? Well, sure, we'll start in chapter 6. Oh, we better jump to, the clock is ticking. We better jump to chapter 7. In chapter 7, we have the teaching of the high priest, the teaching of Melchizedek. And it's introduced that, that Jesus is a greater high priest than Melchizedek. There are some who teach that Jesus, or Melchizedek, sorry, was Jesus incarnate in those days. I wasn't there. I don't know. Maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't. I won't get into that. But he was, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness from Salem, the city of peace. So he was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And his name has great significance to us. And it's also the first place where we read of, of him when reading of bread and wine being served at the same time which we don't have to think very hard, reminds us of the Lord's Supper and getting around the table and, and doing this in remembrance of him and what he's done for us. And we get this introduction to, to Jesus as being a high priest. And what did the high priest do? What was his purpose? Well, the main, one of the main things he was allowed to do that no one else was allowed to do is he would go into the holiest of holies once a year. And there he would, he would enter in and he would be seen three times of the men. He'd be seen walking in. And then he'd go wash his hands. He would come out, get the sacrifice and kill it. And he would go in past the veil, past the curtain, and, and he would go into the holiest of holies and, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And we'd come out. That blood that he would sprinkle would be for him. And then he'd get another sacrifice and he'd slay it and he'd take the blood in again and, and sprinkle it for the sins of the people. And then we'd come out again. But Jesus Christ entered in how many times? Once. Not because his sacrifice was more perfect in this context of chapter 7, 
but he entered in once because he was sinless. He didn't have to offer a, a sacrifice for himself because he was perfect. He had no sin, John would write. Paul would write, he knew no sin. Peter would write, he did no sin. Imagine that. John showing Jesus' deity, he had no sin. Paul, the great theologian, he knew no sin. And Peter, who always got in trouble for acting before thinking, he did no sin. And he only entered in once because he was the perfect high priest. But beloved, because he was the perfect high priest, and he went in only once, He could be the perfect substitute for us. But being a high priest, the scriptures tell us that he would only, there was a place called the city of refuge. And in these cities of refuge that existed in the Old Testament times, if somebody accidentally killed somebody, they could flee to one of these cities of refuge and, and be safe for that time until the until the high priest died. And after the high priest died, he may or may not have been safe anymore. Some people have really long memories. And they don't forget things. There are feuds in Mexico that are so old nobody remembers how it started them. But this family and that family just don't mix. It's oil and water that's worse than cats and dogs. Because sometimes even cats and dogs get along. But Jesus was this great high priest. And being such a great high priest, he was able to, to help, to succor, to comfort them that needed comfort. Because he was tempted in every way, such as we are. And the author of the Hebrews writes, and was without sin. Imagine God coming to this earth and being a human being. That root out of which a sprout came, out of which a branch grew. God incarnate. And he came to this earth. And he became that perfect high priest who only had to go in to the tabernacle or once or into the temple, holy place, one most holy place. But this high priest was tempted. He went through everything we went through. Where was the Lord Jesus tempted? In the desert, wilderness for 40 days. What did the devil throw at him during those 40 days? We only read about three temptations, but I'm imagining he gave it the whole nine yards and was without sin. Actually, the whole life of Jesus, we read about him in the desert. Because Israel basically is a desert, just like Southern California. <laughs> That's why when you look at an atlas, it's called Mediterranean climate. But we see that. And the Lord Jesus went through the desert, and he survived the desert. That's why, beloved, he is able to strengthen us when we go through those deserts in our lives. That's why he's able to help us and understand and comfort us when we need it. That's why there's a throne of grace available to us. He's been there and he's done that. And he knows how to get through it. That's why we, we sing wonderful, the matchless grace of Jesus, isn't it? Because when those deserts and those hard times come, 
we have a human, not just human, he's God too. But this morning, I want to emphasize his humanity, that he's able to comfort and to help and to sustain because he was a man like you and I. He was a human being. And he knows what it's like to suffer. He wept. He was hungry. He lost loved ones. He had the strange opportunity to to die after his father but before his mother. So he got both sides of it. What does it feel when your parent dies? The Lord Jesus knew. What does it feel when your child dies? The Lord Jesus knew. Because he was on both ends. And we have, beloved, a human, not only human, but God in human flesh, who came to this world as the branch and is able to, to go through the deserts with us. And he wants, and he does it, and he proves it. And he sees what's in our hearts. And he wants us to use those trying temptations and trials in our lives to be found as pure gold without anything false in them. He wants us to show his greatness and his strength and our weakness and our infirmities. To show that he is the true God who is able to be our all in all. And when our faith, beloved, is tried as gold going through the fire, it shall come out as pure gold. And one day you'll hear those words from the beloved Savior. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You couldn't do it by yourself. But with me, all things are possible. The deserts are hard times. This evening, Lord willing, we're going to share, it'll be a testimony to what the Lord's been doing in our lives since January. There won't be any big theological Bible teachings about shoots growing out of roots, out of dry grounds that are probably acacia trees. And I didn't get a chance to read Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8. You probably wouldn't recognize them from the book of Jeremiah, but you'd recognize it from Psalm chapter 1. The blessed man who's like a tree planted. That's probably the acacia tree. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. Father, we'd like to thank you that your son became a man. We thank you that he was tried and he was tempted and he was pushed to all the extremes that we sometimes get pushed to. But he went right to the maximum of the extreme. And he was without sin. And so now we have a high priest seated in heavenly places who was able to comfort us and help us and strengthen us and give us wisdom and give us understand when we don't know what's going on. Father, we haven't got a clue what some of these religions that teach that Jesus was not a man, how they deal with tough times. It seems like such a hard thing how could you 
How could a God who's never experienced what we have experienced understand and help in a time of need? But Father, we're thankful that the Jesus of the Bible was God in human flesh. And he could be our perfect substitute for our sin. And he can also be our perfect high priest and able to save to the uttermost and completely our lives when we trust in him. We thank you for the trials. Not all things are good, but all things work together for good to those that trust you, for those who confide in you, for those who lean on you, to those that love you. And so, Father, we pray that if we're in a trial right now, you would encourage us and help us and strengthen us. And if we're not in a trial right now, that you would be using these words as a source of inspiration for the future that would help us to trust in you more and to love you more so you could see that our hearts are fully yours. And as your eyes move to and fro over this whole earth, looking to strongly support everyone whose heart is yours. So help us, we pray. Bless your word to our souls and do an eternal work in our spirits that the Lord Jesus would be honored and glorified and we would be more like him, that tree planted by the still waters, giving our fruit in our seasons. For the honor and the glory of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.